Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can check us out online beyond the FM dial at radionorthland.org. And that's the place, if you're not listening in real time, you can come back to go into the Wrestling Memories Then and Now page and listen to uh, this episode as well as the many great episodes we've been working on this year and the previous six years here on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. We're in our eighth season and it's been uh, a one heck of a ride. Glenn Broggett uh, with you uh, once again here on Pioneer 90.1. Oh, and don't forget, tune in. If you have a smartphone, you can check out us through the tune-in app. Uh, Glenn Broggett with uh, my my friend down there deep in the heart of Texas as we are getting close to wrapping up uh, the, the remnants of the summertime. Uh, I, I have to always have to ask him how the weather is because, uh, you know, I'm here in northwestern Minnesota. We don't get quite the heat any time of year. And it's always good to talk about the heat and more with uh, the grizzled vet himself, Mike McCurdy. How you doing today, man? Well, getting by, getting by, uh, and of course, you know, summer is starting to go away from us here. I, I, I've noticed uh, my lawn is uh, not quite the, uh, you know, the bright, vibrant color of green this time of year. Boy, uh, it, it's made my lawn mowing chores a little less, yeah, you know, a little less strenuous. But yeah, summer's leaving, man. Yeah, there, 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 there's not much in the way of green. Everything's all dried out here, but you know, we're under a hundred today, so. Uh, that's all. That's always pleasant. So I don't have to deal with the heat in the mobile studio, and I'm not going to die today. So once again, Kenny Boland doesn't have to be concerned about me. I, I should be okay. Okay. No. No. Con- no sympathy cards will be sent your way. You've survived another summer season down there in uh, in Texas, and boy, uh, another a week of wrestling memories and uh, another uh, solid booking here. We you not only booked one person, but you've booked two people who've uh, come together uh, once again, reuniting uh, as the old song goes, and it feels so good to put out uh, this this wonderful book we're going to be talking about today. So more, and this is right in your wheelhouse. As my uh, computer makes a noise, this is in our wheelhouse uh, as far as uh wrestling memories for sure oh definitely man you know um, i've enjoyed all the books in this series and i was definitely looking forward to this one as well so pleasure to have these two on as our guests this week but you know like you said this is kind of our wheelhouse you know now we're not just about wrestling memories you know, it's about the history i love the history of the sport and these gentlemen definitely cover the history uh, in the series, especially in this book here. So I'm looking forward to uh, this week's edition of Wrestling Memories. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, talking with both of these gentlemen because uh, on the previous, uh, one of the previous books uh, from the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame uh, was Heroes and Icons. And uh, I was able, and George Shire and myself were able to book uh, Greg Oliver onto the program, one of our guests today. And it was one of, at a time I can remember when he was promoting the book, he was having troubles. I don't know if it was just uh, having some bad luck with getting uh, you know booked or some communication tech issues or or whatever it was, but we were uh, one of the first interviews that kind of got his good luck streak rolling for promotion of, of the book that he put together along with our, our other guest today. Awesome. Heroes and Icons is actually like my favorite entry in the whole series, you know, just to read about all those guys. Plus, you know, if anybody out there owns the book, it also works well as a home security system because that book is huge. Oh, def- that book is massive, but I enjoyed every word of it. You definitely don't want to get on the wrong end of that book being thrown at you. I mean, aside from having the great knowledge in it, uh, yeah, that definitely could leave a mark and maybe uh, get a little juice. A little bit, a little bit, you know. You, you don't want to juice when you're reading your books and all that, and you definitely want to take better care of them. Than, uh, but like I said, big book, a lot of information, but man, that's my favorite one. So I'm looking forward to talking to these guys today and find out a little bit more about the new book that just came out. So 
Yeah, yeah, just a fresh new release from ECW Press, and we thank the friend, our friends at ECW Press for getting us some uh, some e screeners, e books to uh, check out. And I've, I've, like I said, I it's so extensive. I haven't been able to read everything, but the sections I have read so far, I, I've really enjoyed. I just appreciate uh, the above and beyond uh, efforts that these two uh, men have gone uh, through the years with the previous books and this book to uh, you know ed- better educate us about pro wrestling, but also entertain us too about some of the characters and. Th- this book, Mike, has some interesting characters. Uh, in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the storytellers from the Terrible Turk to Twitter. Now, that's a tongue twister if there ever was, but man, there's a lot to take away from this book. Oh, definitely, man. You know, great title, though. When I, you know, I always, you know, great title, but, you know, technically, you know, you kind of consider us, you know, we're kind of storytellers, too, because, you know, part of this book does talk about, you know, the media and, the, you know, the magazines and the sheets and all that. So, you know, we're a little bit of storytellers, you know. Well, we're, not, we're not mentioned in the book, but you know. I guess so. I just love this the the variety of different things and through the years. I mean, just some of the gimmicks and some of the things that were used to get pro wrestling over in the day. But you know what? It'd be so much better if we uh, introduced our guests. They're probably sitting in the the warm up circle, ready to ready to get going. They're like, "Come on, guys, let's talk about the book for a change." Well, anyway, I'm going to introduce uh, our guest today. First, I'm going to introduce uh, Stephen Johnson uh, to the program. This is your first time on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen, for taking some time out today. And before, I'm going to introduce you first, but we have another guest as well. But thank you, Stephen, for being on the program. Oh, thanks for having me on. And we're also going to bring on a man who's making his second appearance on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I mentioned earlier uh, he was on uh, for a previous uh, book uh, that was put out by the you guys here of uh, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame Heroes and Icons uh, from, oh, yes, from the north, from the country, uh, the great nation of Canada, uh, Mr. Greg Oliver. Greg, welcome back to the program. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yes, it's always good to have you got this book. I mean, I mean, it just came out here. Oh, wow. What uh, another uh, tip of the hat to uh, both of you gentlemen for uh, another uh, well put together, well researched uh, book. Ben. This I mean, this was just a few years removed here from the previous book. And uh, I'm going to start off uh, and ask the question about just getting in and diving in and making this follow up uh, to uh, to the book previous Heroes and Icons. And uh, what what was it that uh, made you decide to? to uh, get, go in this direction and go with the storytellers from the Terrible Turk to Twitter. And I'm going to ask the question, and then first I'm going to have uh, Stephen uh, respond with his answer, and then I'll let Greg uh, uh, respond as well, but it's just so we don't get too much of a mix-up here with all of us here on the conference call today. Uh, I want to first uh, hear from Stephen about uh, the process of uh, deciding on what to do with uh, the next series uh, for the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame books and uh, the direction uh, you, you wanted to go in. Well, after we had written the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the tag teams, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the heels, and the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, heroes and icons, and Greg's book on Canadians, ordinary people might have thought we were done. But in fact, we had so many interviews, so much research, and so much information that we had collected over the years that hadn't found a home in a previous book we sort of looked at ourselves long distance from Canada where he is to Virginia where I am and said, Hey, I I think we have another enough for another book here. And the common theme in all those pieces of information that were kind of left on the cutting room table was they were about storytelling in one shape or another storytelling in the ring, storytelling out of the ring. So we took kind of the best of what we had 
and fashioned it into the book that is now the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Storytellers from the Terrible Turk to Twitter. So in the beginning, it was sort of an effort to see if we could find a home or a resting place for the material that we had that hadn't been used. Now, several years later, we are confronted with the fact that we have more information than we ever had before. We have thumb drives and, and, and CDs just overflowing with information that didn't make it into this book. Whether that ever goes anywhere in the future, I don't know, but that's kind of the backstory on how we got here. Greg, I want to talk to to you as well. I mean, this is a kind of a nice return back to uh, writing as far as, you know, you've, you're putting together a pro wrestling book because uh, in between books, you, you keep yourself busy as well, not just re- being a, a wrestling writer. You've, you've done some stuff, some good stuff with uh, hockey history. So this must have been nice to kind of re uh, go back and, and get into a big, thorough uh, research project like uh, the Storytellers. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Thanks. Yeah, no, I did um, seven different hockey books. There <laughs> It sort of came out of the blue, and some of them went by really quickly. Um, but wrestling's always there. I still run the Slam Wrestling website, and uh, so that's been more than 20 years. So my hands are always still in the wrestling game. And, uh, you know, Steve and I are friends, and he sort of proposed this idea, and, and really uh, he was the driving force behind it. But the fact is that I'm a lot more in tune with, uh, the current product than he is. So essentially that's, he, he loves doing the, the really old guys and digging up the, the family members of long deceased people. And I end up doing a lot of the more current stuff. Um, but by this point, I'm not sure anybody could possibly tell even our own families uh, who wrote which ones uh, we we've managed to, to meld our writing styles pretty well. You know, that's kind of like, uh, a, I mean, it's a comparison to the way uh, Ron Wood and Keith Richards play on stage. They meld it together. It's like weaving. You don't know whose part's played by who. But that's, again, a good sign of, uh, you know, good writing and, and just a, a, a way you two work together so well. And uh, the, the things that you bring to each bring to the table uh, make such a great combination that really shines out and shines through in this book um, that covers just the wide swath of uh, wrestling, this isn't just you know fifty or sixty years. You guys take it so far back. You're, you guys are dipping into the eighteen hundreds. I mean, that to me is like, I mean, that's daunting enough to cover all the other years in between and decades in between. But man, you guys go all the way back to the eighteen hundreds, which just just knocks me out. Well, we advertise this as the only book you'll find on the bookstands or on Amazon, for that matter, that includes monkeys alligators, bears, Turks, people who drowned, and Eric Bischoff. So yeah, it's a pretty wide swath that we're covering there, but all of them do fall under this rubric of of how the storytelling art has evolved over time in wrestling, or as may be the case today, not, not evolved as much as you'd hope. Yeah, it goes back to still some of the simple formula, but it, to read about, you know, even going back, I mean, with, with, with some of the gimmicks and some of the things that, uh, you know, that pro wrestling uh, tried upon and put upon their audiences through the years. I mean, this was uh, stuff that I, I mean, again, I'm always learning something. You never you never can stop learning. But I mean, to read about even some of the, the, the gimmick matches, uh, one in particular uh, really kind of caught my eye and uh, gave me a chuckle or two was... Uh, 
actually having a match with involving smelt. I mean, up here we have a lot of those smelt fries where they're dead, you know, whatever, uh, ch- you know, local charity is trying to raise money, but I've never heard of a damn old smelt wrestling match. I mean, good Lord. I mean, you, you, you can't knock them for trying something new. And uh, yeah, this isn't exactly, uh, you know, what people would consider innovative of the time, but I mean, good Lord, uh, it definitely got people's eyes open. Well, there's really two points about that, Glenn and and Michael. Number one is in the 30s, the 1930s, the Depression hit, right? And so it was kind of an anything-for-a-buck attitude. The smelt promoter was a guy named Henry Tolley from Milwaukee, and he promoted smelt matches, mud matches, molasses and feathers matches, egg matches, anything you could possibly think of to keep the turnstiles clicking. It wasn't necessarily an art form. It was a matter of, of surviving in business. But the other point, and I think the, the greater point is, you know, we all kind of scoff at the term sports entertainment. I know I do. I prefer to call it wrestling. But the fact of the matter is, there's always been this element of sports entertainment in the wrestling art, all the way back to the beginning. There's, we, we've, we've gone through dozens and dozens of incidents of that in the book. And we can call it, call it uh, wrestling, but in fact, um, Vince McMahon didn't start sports entertainment. Sports entertainment was there from the start. And that includes smelt and mud and just about any other terrible thing you can imagine two guys wrestling in. You know, I would have thought that uh, with, with Milwaukee and Wisconsin, there might have been some butter or something right out the chute. But and, well, he may just not have thought of it because I think he would have put it on. Henry Tolley would have put it on if he. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Uh, I want to talk about the title itself. I mean, uh, the storytellers from the terrible Turk to Twitter, and again, uh, continuing education in pro wrestling uh, knowledge and history. Uh, the terrible Turk. Uh, I mean, this was uh, another one of those in a series of uh, going back to the eight, late eighteen hundreds into the nineteen hundreds. Uh, the characters uh, and character development of wrestlers. I mean, and just. How, how far they took it back in, in, in those days, especially just how, how primitive things were, the times were. But the Terrible Turk, now that was a, a name that just pops out, and, and the story was definitely something that really complements the gimmick. Go ahead, Greg. Well, that one was yours, though. You wrote that one. <laughs> We're not supposed to reveal that kind of stuff. Uh, well, you edited it, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's an excellent point, though. I mean, we, we seem to think that pro wrestling as a entity really developed in the 30s with Jim Londis, this and that, where the worked matches were commonplace. But, I mean, stories like that and reading about the Terrible Turk, it, it's pretty obvious it's been a worked sport way longer than we usually give it credit for. And uh, Steve dug up some amazing things. And uh, already uh, there's an old WWE announcer. Well, he's not that old, but he was Kyle Edwards there, and he's of Turkish descent. And so, of course, he got a copy of the book and was just floored by the whole... Uh, interesting stuff about the, the the terrible Turk, and and so he shared that with all his you know Turkish friends and followers on Twitter, and so there's a sort of an audience, a, a fan base we maybe didn't think about that uh, when we did the book that's uh, already interested and want to know more. 
it keeps them wanting more. I mean, it, and again, pro wrestling is just such a, a thing, a history of, of interesting characters. It's something that you described in an interview, uh, pro wrestlers, as far as leading what they you refer to as a vagabond lifestyle. I mean, that is uh, pro wrestling to a T, I mean, with the way territories uh, had developed and stuff. And even in, in those early days of the carnivals as well, you'd have traveling to a degree to, uh, you know, get people in uh, and, and get people's eyes uh, to, to what was going on. So definitely when you called it in an interview as a vagabond lifestyle, I think that that really just uh, summed it up. I was going to say compared to like the hockey players and stuff that I've been talking to, right? They all get shepherded around, right? They have people they're, they're responsible to. They have general managers and coaches and trainers. And so they go town to town. These wrestlers are really on their own. I, they're, they're fascinating people, eh, Steve? They're, they're fascinating people. And what you get from them is really kind of unfiltered. As Greg has pointed out numerous times, there's no press agent. No, there is now, but in these old days, there was no press agent sitting by the wrestler in the locker room telling him what to say. But when you get a reunion of old wrestlers together, there's nobody kind of hovering over them to explain what the words politically correct mean. And you'll notice in this book, we do have kind of long passages where we just quote the guys directly because we could not possibly improve on their own words with, uh, with, with our own writing. It, you can almost hear their voices kind of coming through when they're telling these stories from the road. One of the things I want to talk about before I hand it over to uh, Mike McCurdy with his questions is uh, what you opened up the book with. Uh, again, in this book, you guys talk about not only the wrestlers, uh, the per- personalities, but uh, the uh, sometimes just uh, rather fascinating lives of the promoters themselves. I mean, you mentioned Jack Pfeffer and there. We could talk about him. Uh, you know, you had a guy who went beyond just promoting Jim Barnett, who's like the godfather wrestling. But the one you started up with, uh, and it's a good way to get the story to, uh, storytelling underway here in your book was one uh, of, of Parson Davies. Now, can you talk a little bit about, uh, uh, Stephen, first of all, talk about uh, this this character, this promoter, because, again, this is another thing that, uh, that a lot of people probably weren't a person, a lot of people weren't aware of, but a lot of things that when you read about uh, have uh, a lot of similarities to, to a degree with some of the, the promoters who came on after him. It's really a fascinating story. Parson Davies was a Chicago-based promoter. He is as close as there is in wrestling to an Abner Doubleday of baseball, okay, the founding father of the sport. Davies was primarily a boxing guy, but because of all the chicanery involved in boxing, imagine that, he actually (laughs) turned to the more pure sport at the time of wrestling. He was a genius in building up attendance He promoted all kinds of events. He promoted horse versus man racing, the the horse won. Um, He promoted walking races. He promoted every possible thing you could think of. So it was natural for him to get into pro wrestling in the 1880s. And he really is the father of the first worked title change about 130 years ago, where suddenly a promoter, in the somewhat new sport of wrestling to North America says, Hey, wait a second. If I build this upright and I have the ending that I want, I bet I can have a rematch and make double the amount of money that I made for the first contest. That has been the blueprint 
uh, every wrestling feud since 1887. I forget the exact date, but I think it was 1887, right? We have a, a, a title fight that ends in some kind of controversy, maybe a disqualification, maybe a count out of the ring, maybe blood. It sets up a rematch for the following week. And Davies also was the first promoter to organize barnstorming tours of wrestlers, the same wrestlers going from city to city, night after night, fighting the same people, probably with the same moves and move sets and results. So pro wrestling owes a great deal of its development to this guy in Chicago who really has kind of been forgotten over time as far as his development or as far as his role in the development of pro wrestling, Parson Davies. Another guy that uh, we haven't forgotten and uh, a man who uh, even went against his better judgment of uh, 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 in pro wrestling and some of the things he said and some of the things he promoted uh, through his uh, his time was, was Jack Pfeffer. And uh, some of the stuff uh, we, you have covered in the book about Jack and his uh, rise to, as far as a promoter go, he was uh, one of the guys early on, I mean, through the years before the whole uh, veil of kayfabe was completely ripped away. Uh, he actually, uh, you know, kind of ate at his own kind, uh, trying, you know, with these articles uh, revealing, uh, you know, the predetermination of wrestling. But yet he managed to keep his place uh, in pro wrestling for as long as he did. And that to me is, you know, considering in those old days, there was still something to protect. Not everybody was in on it. It was one of those things where they were trying to keep that level of professionalism uh, in the kayfabe era. But he was one of those guys that was a bit of a pisser. Is it, was it a work though? That's, that's what it comes down to, to me, to, a, to some degree. It's like, you know, was Jack Pfeffer playing along and, and all the other promoters were accepting of his uh, strangeness and, and just happy to get the publicity. Uh, it, it, if you look back on it, you do find a lot of that inconsistencies and you're a little bit unsure about maybe he was working us all the whole way, but he's certainly one of the, mm-hmm. if not the greatest character uh, in pro wrestling history. And, and more importantly, he was a bit of a pack rat and kept his stuff. And so the university of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, there has his archives, uh, which is a true treasure trove that Steve and I have been down to, uh, many times. And they certainly helped contribute pictures, uh, to the book. Steve, <laughs> Pfeffer is one of your favorites too, isn't he? Yeah. The, the favorite Pfeffer story I think is he's, he's in a car, he's riding, down the road, he's got a jar of pickles. He had grown the nail on his pinky finger extra long, almost like a Hollywood diva. And he would stick his hand in the jar of pickles and spear a pickle with that extra long pinky nail and eat it on the spot. And that was one of the more organized and classy things that he did. He was, yeah, we should have taken the word character and wrapped it in tissue paper and saved it all just for him. But as Craig suggests, and I totally agree with him on this after having looked at Pfeffer's stuff for years, he may well have been working everybody. Uh, he was, he was that good and he managed to stay in the game despite allegedly upsetting people for really the better part of 45 years as a promoter. So it gives, it does give you, probably the sense that he was on the inside of an inside joke and may have been the only person on the inside of that inside joke. And the thing to me, 
oh god what a character and and the thing that it really <laughs> just gets me to chuckle is how he would go into these 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 towns these cities and he would have these knockoff names these knockoff names yeah. were just uh, your your hobo brazil or your your bummy rogers i mean just for an example of just some of the names that would be like so close enough for someone who wasn't you know probably could have had eye pro- eye issues and didn't look at the the fine print would be like well hey that looks like bruno san martino on the car and it's some Bruno S whatever that if it is basically just hopefully you have reading comprehension because if you don't he probably he probably fooled some people and that was you know just the way it was but I always thought the way he would book these was you know like a little bit of a, a thumb in the eye of, of, of the wrestling business but also kind of hilarious when you look back at it <laughs> that yeah. I was going to say Steve it's almost like he knew he could get away with it like if they really wanted him gone they could have eliminated him but he got away sure with could. it, uh, and and so that makes me think more of, of it being a work. But yeah, Bummy San Martino and all those guys, and some of them actually went on to be decent workers. But yeah, don't discount the importance of them to the, the earlier days of wrestling. What were you going to say, Steve? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing you were, Greg, that it's almost like the wrestling establishment needed Jack Pfeffer. You need that antagonist, just like Superman needed Lex Luthor or, or Batman needed a Joker. You needed that guy continually poking or prodding uh, to define the outer boundaries of acceptability so that you could stay well within it. So that brings up, you know, the guy on the cover, Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. It's not the wrestling we grew up with, but they're still telling stories just in a whole different way. Um, And that's uh, some of the people have already commented on that part of the book that, you know, they didn't really like the current stuff. But, you know, the current stuff got to where it is because of all these guys in the past. And uh, the, the, what the Bucks think they're doing and Kenny Omega and all these guys, they think they're telling stories just in a more modern way. Mm-hmm. It's it's the further movement of, of wrestling, how it evolves and how things have changed through the years. And, uh, again, a classic example, uh, you don't have to look too far, but to look at the cover of, of your book, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Storytellers, from the Terrible Turk to Twitter. We're uh, talking with Greg Oliver and Stephen uh, Johnson today on Wrestling Memories Then and Now. And I'm going to bring it down. I'm going to switch things up. I'm going to uh, step aside for a, for a bit here and go down deep in the heart of Texas for my co-host. And I know he's chomping at the bit with plenty of questions uh mr michael mccurdy you know man i did not forget you down there in the mobile studio and i hope you're not melting at the moment nope no melting and i do appreciate you uh, remembering me um one thing i'd like to talk a little bit about and this is this is fun for me to read um you know i love the history of the sport you know keeping it and chronicling it is one of my favorite things but one thing i want to talk about is growing up as a kid i always was fascinated by you know the masked wrestler and you've got the section of of the masked man, and it's going back to where they start back in you know once again 1800s, you know, and in 1904 and 1914 you had the masked marvel. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about you know the masked man because that was another way of telling a story. And often they would have a guy that was established somewhere that you you might have seen in the ring before. They could put him in a mask and he could tell a second story. So, you know, there was a ways with the mask to tell multiple stories and all that. But I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of the history of the masked man and some of the things you found out during your research. I think the the development of the masked man was probably the biggest change in storytelling in the early years of wrestling next to the idea of a worked title match. 
and the first masked man in the U.S. to gain any, there were a couple of minor ones, but the first one to gain any uh, consequence was Mort Henderson, the masked marvel, who showed up unannounced at a wrestling tournament in New York City in 1916, got into the field and ended up creating a sensation and thus setting the stage for dozens, if not hundreds, of masked marbles to come after him. But yeah, you're right. It's it's a wonderful way to have somebody come in as a mask, under a mask, wrestle one match, take off the mask, go back in the ring, wrestle an entirely different style, and kind of get a twofer if you are a promoter. The thing about the original Masked Marvel that was kind of interesting, and this runs through the book as a constant theme, is it really wasn't original. Everything in wrestling is sort of derivative. The masked marble actually came from a masked ballerina who married a promoter who knew Mort Henderson from their days growing up together in Rochester. And that individual was the one who suggested that Henderson uh, go in under a mask as the original masked marble. They saw what a sensation the masked ballerina, who was wearing a red mask, created, and they figured, well, that's transferable to pro wrestling. So that's really an important element of storytelling in wrestling is cribbing or plagiarizing other things. And we've seen that continue literally throughout the entire course of wrestling history, where Vince McMahon's reaching into the latest headline for a character or Kevin Sullivan is reaching into an MTV skit. He talks about that in the book for an idea or Dusty Rhodes has gone to see a movie and he gets inspired to create a character and angle based on the movie. So it's not all totally original. It, it kind of feeds off each other, but that's a, nothing in wrestling is really original anymore. It's kind of all a product of the way that first mask developed. That's great. Um, if I could get your kind of take on the uh, the Masked Man, because through your involvement with obviously Slam Wrestling and then, you know, your time with the CAC and everything, you've had a chance to, you know, be witness and get to know a lot of the, you know, more famous, more uh, dignified, you know, Masked Men of our sport. So I'd like to get your take on the kind of the history and the significance of the Masked Man. Yeah, Steve delved into all the early stuff and, and certainly through the years, um, there's there's even a great picture we have with Don Jardine uh, in the middle of the book where he's yeah. yelling um, yelling at a fan at ringside and that just shows the audience participation which was key to wrestling back then and now it's it's certainly key now but just different and Jardine's one of those guys um, that was that was fabulous that was way better uh, under a mask than he was uh, as babyface Jardine um, and that's fascinating to me is that the way they're able to change their personalities when they're not visible. So you have to emote more, you have to show more physicality, all these things to, to make them see up in the rafters uh, what you're trying to do. Um, and of course, the, the greatest, you know, one of the greatest was Dick Byer, uh, uh, who was a great friend. And uh, I went to his funeral not that long ago, the sensational, intelligent Detroiter. Talk about a fascinating character and a, and a fascinating uh, funeral to go to. Just, I mean, it's all about this guy in a mask, whether he's Dr. X or the destroyer, it's all about a guy who was a, you know, community activist and, and everybody knew him and he was also a coach. So everybody knew him, whether he coached football or swimming or whatever. 
So the the fascinating thing about the the mask is the way they're allowed to lead real lives away from the ring um, that are are a little bit more normal, perhaps in some ways than say like a George Steele. With his face, Dick Byer couldn't have been a heel. He was too good looking. The mask was the only way he could have been a heel. Good point. One thing I've always been interested in, and I've seen this obviously being a CAC, is you know you get a guy with the mask, you know like for example, Mil Moskowitz obviously very well known for the mask and multiple masks. But, you know, the story is that you never, people who worked with him for decades never saw him without the mask. They would say that he would, you know, he showered wearing the mask, that he came to the building wearing the mask. So for a lot of these mask guys, it was kind of, you know, that was their identity. They came to the building, they left the building, and they say that people didn't know who, even the guys that worked with him never really saw them without the mask which I think is kind of interesting that it meant that much and they, you know, kept into it so much and another way of telling the story in itself outside of the ring. Yeah, it really, it, it, you hit it on the head, Mike. That's, a, that's another way of telling stories, right? You've created a, uh, almost an aura about the guy that the mask means that much to him that he wears it all throughout his personal life. How important is it that he, he goes into the ring and protects it at all costs? the mask becomes almost more important than a title or a belt or a championship. It all makes me wish that we could cover Mexican and Japanese wrestling a lot better. The fact is that we sort of eliminated that from our, our wheelhouse or, or wherever it else is wrestling is in the world. It's not really our culture. It's really hard for us to write with any sort of expertise. Um, and, and so that's, kind of not been a part of our books um and that's sort of one of my biggest regrets but you know you can't cover everything that's just being realistic right another thing i'd like to talk about a little bit um in one of your sections here is you know we've got the mask man you got the history of sport going all the way back as we said to the 1800s but you talk about the spectacles uh the kind of the larger than life the people that left an indelible image and one of those is another one that i'm kind of fascinated with and that's uh marie Celeste who was known as the, uh, the the French Angel, they say that, you know, his face was kind of the inspiration for Shrek. Um, obviously, he was different look and all that, but I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, Maurice Tillette and kind of the spectacles of uh, professional wrestling that you cover in this book. You want to do that one, Steve? <laughs> uh, go ahead. You did, uh, you did the... Uh, the uh a late piece on, on slam which is a great piece and, and the basis yeah, for what well, we did and that that's a good example of how things can complement each other right maybe this story had a genesis somewhere else or we did an interview years ago um that stuff just sort of sat around in the can and we didn't use it till we needed it uh maurice Tillet, yeah, it's fam- famous ugly mug uh there's really no other way to put it and promoters took advantage of that um he had the same disease that andre the giant did where you know his his body continued to grow uh, but he became a larger-than-life character, and he entered popular culture. Uh, so mm-hmm. to say that he was part of the inspiration for Shrek, I don't think it's out of the question. Um, but, you know, it certainly wasn't the only inspiration. Uh, but he's only one of many of those guys, right? There's all the guys, you know, the the, the blimps, the, the, the Haystacks Calhoun, some of these guys we didn't write about either. A lot of the ideas that, you know, you tell the story of the gimmick, whether it's midget wrestling or alligators and bears through one person's story. And uh, in this case, yeah, it's a story of, you know, how odd characters can become main eventers. They just may not have lasting, uh, lasting 
stardom. Uh, you know, they, they'll be memorable, but you can't have that guy in the top of your card uh, week after week. And Andre the Giant's a perfect example of that. I mean, he moved around territory to territory on purpose because the act wears thin. Uh, so I think it would have been a lot the same. I mean, we obviously weren't around at the time of um, Maurice Tillet, the, the French angel, but uh, I'm sure that's a good reason he kept moving because it, it would get a little bit stale, I think, after uh, a few months. I want to skip forward just a little bit. Um, once again, there's so much history in this book that there's no way that Glenn and I can cover a lot of the topics we're discussing. But I'd like to talk one, um, Greg, we'll start with you, is kind of the evolution of storytelling when it revolved into the wrestling magazines, starting with like, you know, the boxing magazines that would have like a story or two, and then going on into the the Western, you know, magazines, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and all that, where and when they first started, you know, now they're a little bit more, you know, based in, you know, the truth. But when they first started, they used those magazines to tell these stories of, you know, for the people that were out of the territories that didn't get to see us, they had a chance to read these articles, and there'd be things like, I'm hunting down this guy, or you'd have the, you know, obviously like in the 80s, you had the infamous cover of uh, Kamala with Hogan's head on a, on a spear, you know, and how the magazines were used to, you know, tell the stories and relay things to the people, you know, they were out of the territories. They didn't get to see it as it was happening. I, I think you're reading almost too much into it, Michael. I don't think there was actually working together in the sense that I don't think, you know, Vince McMahon Sr. ever said, well, let's use these magazines to do this. The magazines had a little bit of free reign, and, and it's actually kind of ridiculous, and nowhere else. Uh, well, I guess it's more like your teen beat and, and some of those kind of things where, you know, they could sort of make up the stories on their own uh, and give them a life of their own. Uh, today we call that clickbait, I think. But uh, back then, uh, I mean, the, they had so much free reign to sort of do what they wanted in the magazines. And sometimes they'd get some cooperation from the promotion uh, and other promotions wanted no part of them. And just like WWE for a while, they decided, oh, we're not going to work with anybody. We're going to be our own media company. And they soon realized, well, life doesn't quite work like that, does it? So um, the magazines and the promotions always had a really strange relationship. There's really no other way to put it. And um, they're not, they were essential to each other in the sense that you mentioned, like you knew about Dusty Rhodes before he ever got to your territory because he was in the magazines all the time. Oh my God, Mill Mascaris has come in the town. We got to see him. So I miss those days. I, I think that would go for a lot of your listeners too, is that, uh, you know, we really miss what magazines brought to the table. They were a little bit extra uh, flavoring for our pro wrestling. We talk a lot about on this show, people come on and, they do talk about, you know, they collected the magazines, they kept them, you know, they still have them, they go back, they look at these. They're great things. They're great things to look at. Um, and like you said, they I didn't realize they had as much free reign because I've heard stories where, you know, they would run something and the promoter would call the magazine and flip out because, you know, oh, you said this, you can't do this, I need you to do this. So I thought in a way they did kind of work with them a little bit. Maybe that was more towards the, uh, you know, Maybe that was more in the 80s and all that when that was happening as compared to uh, maybe an earlier day. Uh, again, it depends on the magazine and the, and the day and the mood of the promoter, right? I mean, Bill Apter tells some of those stories in his own book. You know, what one moment, you know, WWE's on or WWF is on side with them and it's fine at ringside, and the next day they decide he can't be there. 
and now he's back on, you know, being interviewed for their documentaries. So you can't really predict how these things were going back then because it was a fictional uh, stories based on a, you know, uh, a worked sport. So it's not exactly Sports Illustrated we're talking about here. It's like taking a picture of a hologram. You know, it, 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 you really can't quite capture the essence of it because it's changing from second to second. Now, part of the book, you know, we've been talking about this for the last, you know, time here, is the history of it. And for our listeners, you know, maybe we'll get a little bit of this. Um, the book isn't all about, like, you know, the 1800s and 1900s. It is an evolution from the beginning up until now. Um, you obviously said, you know, Stephen's more into the older history of the sport. Greg, you're more in tune with the modern how are you able to kind of come together and put this together? Because that is a large expansion, you know, expanse of time to cover, you know, and then to actually make it where it is readable for, you know, the readers and all that. They are interested in it and in essentially telling your own story. There wasn't really a clear division of labor, Michael, but here's, here's the way we tried to organize it. We had a chapter. I'll use the hardcore chapter as an example. There's, there's three entries in the hardcore chapter. The first entry is the origin of the ladder match, Dan Crawford in Canada. Greg and I both talked to Dan a number of times, and we kind of threw the stuff together we had on that. Then the ladder match evolved into a more hardcore style, which is uh, a good example of that is the style of Rob Van Dam and how Rob Van Dam himself started to use his ability to tell a story rather than just string together a series of high spots. And I, and I talked to Rob. And then the third, we go from a ladder match to some serious Van Daminator stuff to the section Greg wrote on women's hardcore wrestling. And Greg, you can take it from there because she was, Jules Malone was a great, great piece. Yeah, that's, that's one of the fascinating things. I mean, we went down the road trying to get some of the real names that a lot of people would know, like uh, Necro Butcher, Matt Tremont, and Shellac, and all those guys sort of flaked out. I, I'm not sure there's a better word for it. Um, and then I started talking with Kevin Pond, or Madman Pondo, and he was promoting women's death matches. And uh, so he put me in touch with a couple of girls. One of them I knew from Toronto. I didn't know her well. But um, Jules Malone, uh, Michelle Cooper, she just had a great way of explaining what she did. Basically, you know, counting by day. And on weekends, she lets it all loose and, and gets her barbed wire bat and goes and bleeds everywhere. Uh, and she had a great way of describing things. Uh, but it's odd the way things work out. And then Mickey Knuckles was another one that Madman Pondo said to talk to. And for whatever reason, we could never connect. She couldn't call Canada uh, on her on her phone and it wouldn't accept my call. So she ended up sending me this amazing Q&A that was terrific. And if we'd had that at the beginning, I probably would have written the whole piece around her. Uh, But that's that's a what if, right? And and that's just the way these things happen. The fact is that uh, we have to be very flexible. Um, And we may have wanted to tell one story and for whatever reason it didn't happen. And so you find another story and, and that they turn out great is Sometimes a happy accident. And Michael, you and Glenn have found this uh, this too. You know, the best stories or the most informative pieces of information don't always come from the top guys. 
a lot of time the guys and the gals who are down the run a little bit, who've paid their dues, who've traveled the roads, who wrestled in front of small crowds for $5 or beer money, are the ones who are more able to convey what they're doing and why they did it than the top stars who have all the charisma and really can't explain how they developed that charisma. So sometimes you don't always see the, the big names in some of the books that Greg and I have done, but that's intentional. They don't tell the stories as well, at least for print, as some of the folks who have maybe gone through a little bit harder school of knocks and come out on the other end with some fascinating stories to tell. Well, that, that was mentioned just in a recent review at Canadian Bulldogs World of, of the book, was that, oh, it doesn't really go into Dusty Rhodes or Roddy Piper uh, in storytelling. It's like, but then Steve and I sort of look at each other and go, well, we wrote about both those guys in the other books. So you want to know about their storytelling, go read it there. So it is meant to be read on its own, sure, but it's also meant to be read as a, as a bigger picture and part of the, the four to five uh, book series. Depends how you want to find Canadians. The Processing Hall of Fame of the Canadians is out of print now, so it's a lot harder to find. And I think people can identify with it in this sense, Michael and Glenn. There are a lot more Charlie Fultons in the wrestling world than there are Hulk Hogan's. And um, there are a lot more Greg Oliver and Steve Johnson's in the world than there are Kings or Queens of Denmark. <laughs> if, unless it's for sale. I haven't shucked today. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that, you know, from experience, some of our better interviews have been with you know, maybe the guys that people haven't heard of. We've had Madman Pondo on our show to talk about his book, and that was just a wealth of stories, and oftentimes we bring these guys back because we didn't realize at that time how many stories they had to tell, or as they were telling their stories, we were able to, you know, come up with more that we wanted to hear, so we've had him back. I think Sam Houston we've had back, what, how many times? Four times Sam Houston's been on our show now? Three to four times, I'm thinking, is what we have for Sam, yeah. All right, well, I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn now because we're coming up into the, the, the final moments of our show here, so I'm going to pass it back over to him. Well, thank you so much, Mike, because, uh, yeah, you, you guys just kind of hit on it here. Uh, it was an, something I wanted to talk about, too, uh, a section of the book. Uh, yes, you guys talk about Helping Hands, the unsung heroes of wrestling. And, again, totally nail what I was thinking about how some of these guys, the guys that weren't exactly on the top of the card way up here in AWA country, for instance, I grew up, you know, watching Jake, the milkman Milliman and seeing the latter day uh, stuff for Kenny J, but you guys talk with them in this book. You also bring up, uh, you know, guys uh, from the modern, more the modern era, like Reno Riggins and Gene Ligon. Of course, Gene Ligon was in mid Atlantic for, for a good part of his career. But another one that really, I got to, to read about and I found so interesting too, was Pepe de Pasquale. Uh, a Canadian journeyman and uh, the incident he had with Ed Farhat. So, so many of these guys, great guys aren't exactly the main event. And these are the guys that you definitely, uh, again, we've had such a good, you know, good barometer of success with these guys because they, they're just willing to talk and share. And you find out so many great stories because they're not as guarded of their gimmicks as maybe some of the guys that are, uh, you know, still popular, you know, at, at this certain, you know, still do, uh, making appearances on television. So those were the guys that I really, in a section I found to be quite interesting the, the way yeah. I, I often describe it steve is they the, the main event guys have told the story so many times they believe it and so you don't know whether to trust them anymore was the these lesser guys have nothing to lose is that a fair statement that's a fair statement what do you I mean what kind of imagination is there in telling the ultimate warrior 
you're going to go out there, no sell two punches, then you're going to throw this guy over your head and pin him. Now, the other guy, the guy who's taking the beating, has to think, okay, how can I approach him? Should I approach him from the front? How can I make him look like he's superhuman? How can I sell these moves? There's more thought and consideration given on the part of the underneath guy sometimes than there is on the, the top of the card guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of the really, really good trainers around the country are not necessarily the big names in the sport. They were guys who worked under cards because they had to study their match. They had to study their profession. They had to learn the hard way. And they truly were the helping hands of the industry. Oh, 100%. And, you know, another thing is uh, when I was reading that section was, you know, just how how faded from from view and you know since the the dawn of the the monday night wars and uh, how you know all of these matches that have been airing the, you know from that point on it seemed that were much more competitive that kind of was a, a gradually eroding away of of the enhancement guy because you didn't see a lot of those guys that uh you know we used to watch on saturday morning television or on the various syndicated shows it had really kind of uh, veered away from from uh, what bobby uh, heenan would call the ham and eggers one of the things that didn't make it into the book was something that RVD told me in, in our conversations. And, and Rob said, you know, I, kind of, I understand why, but I kind of wish they would bring back the squash match or where I could go out there and beat somebody and look like I was pretty good in doing so instead of going in every Monday night and having my head getting beaten across the ropes and thrown to the ground and then expect me to come across to the audience as a star. You know, th those guys gave a little bit of rub in, even to the top stars, and they recognized it. And I think, well, it's not going to come back. I think there was a certain element in elevating stars to those matches that you know, maybe, we've, maybe we've lost that throughout the ages. We got a little bit of time here. I want to ask uh, one more question. Uh, and I, 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 if I wouldn't, if I didn't bring it up, especially being up here uh, in, in AWA country, uh, I, I definitely would feel like I, I missed out, and I, and I don't want to have any regrets here as we uh, finish up here today. But uh, you talk in a section that you dedicate to to training and how wrestlers came up and got learned and, and, and honed their craft. And and today, you know, finding a wrestling school is you know a, 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 sometimes a tricky thing to wade through. Uh, some of the the pretenders and some from some of the guys that actually have legitimate credibility uh, outside, of course, your uh, your WWE performance centers and stuff. The wrestling schools are all over the place but you know when i think about pro wrestling schools and you guys had such a great section on it i could have uh, read about 10 more pages on it because i just love the history of it was uh, in the awa and the, the legacy of Vern Gagne and his training school i mean we talk about some of these big classes that came out of the 70s and stuff but when you look at the, the pro wrestling landscape, if you took out those guys that trained under Vern, it, it definitely uh, there'd be uh, some major holes and vacancies and, and, and definitely some histories that would be totally gone from the scene if it weren't for Vern and the training camp and the, and the way he trained with, along with his uh, co-trainers and fellow wrestlers through the years over there on that on Vern's farm. I mean, what a legacy that that, that left behind. Uh, you want to talk about a Hall of Fame. Too bad they had to tear the thing down and Vern had to deal with his problems, uh, you know, with his land and losing his land because that should have been like a, a, a historic preservation site as far as all of the as pro wrestling goes as far as getting all these guys together in that barn through the years 
Yeah, to call it training school is probably glorifying it a little bit, right, Glenn? It's more like Vern's training dilapidated barn with no heat and no air conditioning. Plenty of chicken poop. The number of guys, yeah, but the number of guys, and there's some great stories in the book about that when guys recounted them. But to, to think about just that first class that he had with, you know, future world champions Ric Flair and, and Iron Sheik and Patera, Brunzel, Ganya, his son Greg Ganya, and, and Bob Rubbers, who's career was really cut short by the airplane accident name me any training performance center in the world that kicks out six guys of that caliber in a period of whatever it was 15 or 20 weeks it's just unheard of even today 50 years later one you know it just when you look at the names i mean rick flair's your kenny pateras i mean rick flair was kind of a happy accident uh when you in your book you talk about you know he was a friend of pateras and you know i guess yeah. kenny had his credibility you know he had was you know in the olympics and he was just such a a stud weightlifter but i mean rick flair was a guy that uh kind of came in on on the you know kind of just one of those wasn't actively scouted he, he basically fell into some some good good fortune i mean to be in the location at the right place right time sort of thing and for rick this wasn't the easiest uh thing for him as we has been documented you know rick rick wanted out but uh, thankfully uh he he toughed it out because again this is another one of those big stars you could imagine uh, the business being without that's a good point yeah you you do it well life's about what if right and that, that's not just in wrestling that's in all life and but even like we, I actually talked to Bob Bruggers years ago, but we didn't use it in the book. I mean, there's all kinds of things we've could added and we didn't try to do the Iron Cheek interview. It's not really necessary uh, and maybe not worth the headache, but you're right. It, it's, <laughs> life's about what ifs and, and Ric Flair, had he quit? Wow. Who would have been strutting last night at the Houston Astros game, right? Where he threw it the first pitch and did some woo and some strutting. He's almost become a bigger star in retirement than he was when he was wrestling, don't you think? It's really more that. ubiquitous. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, just the things that he's been doing. I mean, he's not. He, he's always popping up with some some place doing something somewhere. It seems like here, and uh, you know, it's one of those things that I, I don't know. I think Rick is just going to go until Rick can't go. Period. I mean, it's one of those things, man. I think that, you know, the day we hear about Rick passing away, he probably he'll be off doing something, being somewhere because Rick is he's got the addiction, man. The pro wrestling thing, the fame thing. It, it, it's just hard for him. And, you, and it's proven through time and his documentaries to just turn off, flip the switch and not be Ric Flair. And that's that's true of so many guys in the storytellers book, though, just to kind of bring it back home is I can't tell you how many sons or daughters or granddaughters or grandsons or friends that we talked to who all said, you know, person X would have been perfectly content if he died in the ring. That would have been the greatest place for him to go. And I think that's true for so many wrestlers is it becomes not just part of who they are, but who they are, that they'd be perfectly content if, uh, if, if it all ended for them right there in the middle of the squared circle because that's the way that they identified themselves. And I think you see that theme through so many of the guys and gals that we write about in the book. And that's, that's, that's really kind of an attraction to it for me. Yeah. There's, there's special people, special men and women and what they do entertains us. And uh, so we tried to get a little insight on, on what they're thinking as they entertain us and, and how the storytelling all works. Well, gentlemen, you guys have gone above and beyond again uh, with another of these wonderful books in the series for the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. This one, the brand new, out 
It's there, man. If, you, if you're if you listening to this show and you're wondering about this book, you're like, oh, I'm tempted, man. Get on it. If you've read those books in the previous in the previous books in the series, this one complements the other ones just as well. You might as well add it add it to the library, read it, enjoy it at your leisure. There's so many different spots. I've read different sections of the book. I got to go back and read a few more things. I'm now not quite done reading and I still have, have just taken in so much knowledge from it and I just and in, and I've been entertained and I've enjoyed it too at the same time so education and entertainment coming together is a great thing and thank you gentlemen for coming together with me uh, and uh, Mike today uh, Steve Johnson and uh, Greg Oliver uh, Steve uh, thank you for uh, being a part of the uh, wrestling memories Greg as well you guys uh, again thank you for for such a wonderful book and uh, taking some time today to talk about the book thanks for having me oh, on, well, thank you Glenn and, yeah and, and we look forward to seeing Mike at CAC Mike, we got to have the last word from you, man. Um, well, actually, the last word, well, one, I'm hoping to make it to CAC. Since I moved to Texas, the, uh, the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame has been more uh, within my reach. But it's been a pleasure to have Greg and Stephen on. But real quick, before we let them go, Glenn, I think we need to let them have the obligatory plug. Where can our listeners find the newest edition in the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series? Well, it, it's available in all bookstores and uh, online, Amazon. Um, the idea is that if you have a local bookstore in town, go in there, ask them to order it for you. It supports a local business, but chances are they may order another copy for their shelf. So it does help authors and it helps smaller businesses stay in shape because um, we really need bookstores. There, there's no really other way to put it. Um, and also oliverbooks.ca uh, has all the different books. Uh, you can look up all those ones, including my hockey ones, because I'm assuming there's a little bit of crossover to some hockey books too. Oh, absolutely. Up here in northern Minnesota, my God, yes, you got that right. Well, it's it for Wrestling Memories then and now. For the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy, and our guest, Stephen Johnson and Greg Oliver, this is Glenn Broggett. So long for now.